Support for The Interchange comes from Schneider Electric, the leader of the digital transformation in energy management and automation. Schneider Electric is pioneering solutions like microgrids for everything from community resiliency to higher adoption of electric vehicles. Find out more in the show notes. We've got a link to their microgrid solutions. Support also comes from PG&E. 20% of EV drivers in the U.S. are in PG&E's service territory in Northern California, and they are helping electrify corporate vehicle fleets. You can get in touch with PG&E's EV specialists to find out how to take your transportation fleet electric. Go to pge.com gtm to find out more. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor in GTM. I'm in Boston. Welcome to the show. Out in Berkeley, California is Shale Khan, my co-host and a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. It's part three of our climate risk series, and we're going deep on the housing market. So let me ask you, when you bought your house out there in Berkeley, were you thinking about natural disaster risks? Well, yes, <laughs> primarily earthquake risk. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're in if you're in Northern California, then uh, among basically the entire West Coast, you're terrified about earthquakes. I also am terrified about earthquakes, so I was thinking about that. I did. Um, I looked at houses in some other places where I was worried about things like floods and sea level rise, um, but I'm a little further from the, co- the the water, so I'm I'm I should be safe from that, barring some horrible horrible climate change outcome. But, uh, you know, obviously now wildfires are uh, a relevant factor here, too. What's the market for earthquake insurance like? Oh, don't get me started on the market. <laughs> for <earthquake>. It's <laughs> it's uh, horrible. <laughs> you it's incredibly expensive and the coverage is really bad. There's like a California state program called the California Earthquake Authority, which like kind of backs it. But you have to get it through your local lender and um, or your insurer and your insurers don't all cover it. It's it's a mess. We won't go there. I live in East Boston and I'm surrounded by water. And so the first thing I did when we were thinking about buying a house out here was look up FEMA flood maps and do our research on flooding. Um, we're up on a hill. So turns out, according to the FEMA maps, we're in pretty good shape over a hundred year period of time. Um, but, but uh, uh, guess what? <laughs> I, I found out that those maps are not so good. Right. The, the, I would say the primary learning for me from all this uh, learning that I've been doing around climate risk is that FEMA flood maps are not great. <laughs> yes, it's a real problem. And that is part of what we're going to be talking about in this show. Um, I, I will actually tell you that I, I feel pretty good still. I mean, we are way up on a hill. Um we're we're kind of surrounded by one side on a river. We've got the airport on one side. So there's really not a lot of flooding risk for us like there is in other parts of East Boston or just throughout Boston, really. In fact, a mile down the street at the edge of Boston Harbor on our side in East Boston, they're developing these new condo buildings, these super expensive units that sit right in these special flood hazard areas. Like even in the FEMA maps that are out out of date, these buildings are in flood hazard areas. And it boggles the mind. How do these things keep getting built? How are they insured? Who is backing these buildings? And so this week, we are exploring the financial risk of this kind of development. And our guest co-authored a really deep and important study quantifying the problem in the U.S. housing market and identifying how banks are shifting 
that risk to us, the taxpayers. Our guest is named Amin Wasad. He's a professor of applied economics at the Graduate School of Business at HEC Montreal. He joined us from his Montreal office. And Shale, you dug this piece of research up. You passed it over to me. And then the subsequent New York Times article that came out summarizing the research. What compelled you about it? Well, I think in my ongoing obsession around understanding climate risk and the ways that it's playing out, I think one of the things that I'm finding to be interesting and terrifying um, is basically like, I I think climate change and the, the risk of climate change is going to cause all these little distortions in our economy. There's just going to be so much of our economy is driven by weather and natural disaster and temperature and all this different stuff. And so I think you could almost look to like any section of the economy, apply a climate risk lens to it and then say, ah, this is going to get, this is going to turn weird, you know, in one way or another. And one of the areas that I think we're starting to see that play out right now as evidenced by Amin's research is in the mortgage market. And obviously that one carries a particular weight in the United States because it was largely the cause of our last financial disaster. Um, And in fact, the players who were involved in that last financial disaster, particularly Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are, you know, sort of the US taxpayers bearing the burden of a bunch of mortgages, they appear to be involved uh, this time as well in sort of an inability to price in a risk, um, which is basically what happened in the last financial disaster. Now, it may not be the same order of magnitude of a risk that we saw last time around, but it's a good example to me of one of the ways in which climate change is just going to start to cause these strange little distortions in our economy. Right. So the market for coastal mortgages in the U.S. is worth $60 billion or more per year, depending on you know uh, the real estate market and housing construction, et cetera. And, and the striking thing about this research and other similar findings is that it's not confined just to a small number of coastal properties. If you have significant default rates, it can reverberate through communities and potentially the broader housing market. And so a lot of people are asking, at least in the popular press, when they're summarizing this research, could this be a repeat of the 2007-2008 housing market collapse that caused the financial crisis? I think the answer is, at this point, no, because we're talking about a specific slice of the housing market, at least when it comes to coastal properties. But still, there is this reverberation that can happen through these communities. And it's not just like a bunch of select houses that are at risk. It can actually have a ripple effect. Yeah, I don't think we know entirely yet. I think, you know, Amin's research, which which I talked to him about, is um, new, and there isn't a whole lot of research on this yet. So I think it remains to be determined exactly how big the the risk is. Uh, But it is true, not to sort of fear monger here, I think it is true that like the numbers that we're talking about, the potential losses to the American taxpayer as a result of this, you know, as it stands today are in the billions, probably, um, but maybe not yet at the level of the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, which was, you know, a couple orders of magnitude larger than that. So we shouldn't overstate it. At the same time, this is the beginning, right? And we just don't know where this is going to go. And I think it's important to shine a light on all these little market distortions caused by climate change, because that's the only way that we're going to actually adjust as a result. And this is, to me, the whole thing about this series that we've been doing on climate risk, which is step one is understand the risk. But then step two is do something about it. Price it in, 
um, insure against it, plan around it, something. Uh, and so, you know, we just got to make sure that we're doing that, whether we are individual citizens or homeowners, whether we are business people or whether we are policymakers or even the federal government. And so this is just another place where that's needed. You guys really bring the wonk in this interview. Yeah. I mean, look, give me an academic paper and let me <laughs> run and you've made a huge mistake. But no, I mean, it's it's really interesting research. And, and the, the challenge with it is that it's not, it's not easy to just say like, what's the impact of climate change on the mortgage market right now? That That's hard to measure. And so what Amin and his colleagues who wrote the paper figured out was a, a pretty clever way to try to get at this question, which has to do with the relationship between private lenders and Fannie and Freddie and the rules that govern Fannie and Freddie. So it's sort of inherently a little bit wonky, but um, but I at least think it's really interesting. Great. Well, let's hear your conversation with Amin Wasad, who's a professor of applied economics at the Graduate Business School, HEC Montreal. Uh, the study that you're talking about is called Mortgage Finance in the Face of Rising Climate Risk. Amin, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for your invitation. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to chat with you about this research that you conducted recently, but I think we should start by offering a little bit of context setting for folks who are not deeply embedded in the mortgage market and as fascinated by it perhaps as you are. So um, what is the role of Fannie and Freddie in this market very briefly? And what's the sort of, what are the restrictions that Fannie and Freddie have that private lenders do not? Right. So uh, prior to the existence of uh, the creation of Fannie and Freddie, um, the uh, banks that were giving uh, mortgages needed to have deposits, uh, matching deposits of customers on their balance sheet to extend uh, mortgages. Uh, now, Fannie and Freddie ch changed that, uh, that, that mechanism because they allowed the banks to sell their mortgages to uh, Fannie and Freddie um, and shield um, the uh, commercial banks from uh, the risk of default uh, of households. Um, when households default on their mortgages, the, the lenders are not exposed to the default risk. And second, it, it provides liquidity to uh, the commercial banks and the non-bank lenders so that they can extend many more mortgages uh, than the amount of deposits that they have on their balance sheet. And so this process of securitization that Fannie and Freddie uh, enable uh, is allowing uh, uh, lenders to extend many more mortgages than they would otherwise. They were created during the uh, New Deal. Um, so we're talking about uh, FDR's administration. Um, and they've been central to uh, um, uh, enabling households, American households, to be homeowners. So, okay, so a mortgage lender has sort of two options, sort of broadly speaking, mortgage lender has two options with a loan. They can hold it on their balance sheet or they can offload it to Fannie or Freddie and securitize it. And so the sort of crux of what the, the, the question you've been asking is, um, can we see any impact from climate change or specifically from natural disasters on that decision, right? Which mortgages to originate that a lender can offload and which mortgages a lender can originate and hold. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been, um, there was a, a major uh, academic work in uh, 2008, uh, right after the uh, financial crisis, that said that commercial banks were selling their, their 
bad loans to the government-sponsored enterprises Fannie and Freddie. Uh, that work by that work by Ben Keys at Wharton um, um, really showed that um, the lenders were offloading um, the unobservable uh, unobservable bad risk onto the balance sheets of Fannie and Freddie. Now. When uh, when we thought about the securitization process, we w- we we also thought that they would offload their bad climate risk. Um, that is, if Fannie and Freddie are not cautious in the kinds of mortgages that are purchasing, uh, they're purchasing from the commercial lenders. The commercial lenders that have a branch network on the ground, they have loan officers, uh, they know uh, the areas in which they're extending loans. Well, uh, they may be able to observe the climate risk a little uh, better better than Fannie and Freddie. And um, and then when we 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 worked more and more on the research, we realized that Fannie and Freddie really didn't have a proper mechanism to assess the sort of climate risk that they were purchasing from the commercial lenders. Um, We realized that they were using maps that were outdated. Uh, We realized that Fannie and Freddie were not pricing uh, the climate risk accurately. So the commercial lenders, when they sell a mortgage to Fannie and Freddie, uh, they pay uh, what is called a guarantee fee. Think about it like an insurance premium. The commercial lender pays a guarantee fee in exchange of which Fannie and Freddie insured the commercial lender against the risk of default. Uh, now, that guarantee fee should depend on climate risk. It should depend on whether a house is going to be flooded. Um, it should depend on uh, whether a household defaults uh, when the house is flooded. Uh, it should depend on whether the household has taken up uh, flood insurance. Uh, and, and what we realized, and we were quite shocked to discover this, was that there was little uh, screening of mortgages purchased by Fannie and Freddie um, for climate risk. Um, and so, 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 so we, we, uh, we started that research by, by basically, you know, speaking to Fannie and Freddie about this, uh, about this issue. And then we decided to build our own um, data capabilities to see whether there was a systemic risk uh, driven by climate. Um, and, and we discovered that there is between 60 and $100 billion of mortgages that are uh, originated in coastal areas every year, uh, which is a significant amount. Uh, and... You know, when you look at shares, it's about you know sixty five percent of mortgages are are securitized, they're sold to Fannie and Freddie. So we're talking about big numbers here, really, really large flows, uh, and and potentially subst- very substantial risk that Fannie and Freddie are taking on their balance sheet. So we're really concerned about this, um, and and we're concerned about it also because Fannie and Freddie are um, uh, guaranteed by uh, the U.S. taxpayer. Uh, so, you know, since 2008, uh, they are in conservatorship. That is, they are uh, managed and um, their uh, losses are guaranteed by the U.S. Treasury. And so lo- if there are large, potentially catastrophic losses due to climate change uh, in the current you know, in the current structure of Fannie and Freddie, that would be uh, uh, directly transmitted to U.S. taxpayers. That would be borne by the U.S. taxpayers. And so, so we're really concerned about this. 
Okay, so I want to dig in a little bit to the the findings here and to get a little bit into the weeds. What what you're actually looking at is um, Fannie and Freddie, as I understand it, they they can basically buy loans up to a certain amount, this conforming loan limit. And so you see a lot of lenders trying to basically offer loans that are up close to that limit, bunching around that limit, because that means they can offload those loans onto Fannie and Freddie and thus originate more uh, than they would have otherwise been able to do. And so the, the question you're asking is basically, in places where there is climate risk, um, natural disaster risk, are lenders bunching even more around that loan limit? In other words, are they originating more mortgages than they otherwise would have been on a relative basis that are clo- close to but under the limit um, that Fannie and Freddie can underwrite so that they can offload those loans? Can you just give us the high-level numbers? How big is You found a, a significant impact. How, how big is it? Oh, yeah. So today, the conforming loan limit is about $483,000. Um, and if you, if you know, there, there's a lot of files that allow us to see how many mortgages are originated at each, uh, loan amount. You see that there's a very large amount of loans that are originated right below that limit. Uh, that is at $482,000, $483,000 exactly. Um, and when I'm saying a substantial number of loans is that if, if, if I showed you the picture of the number of loans by mortgage amount, you just see a huge spike at the conforming loan limit and practically, you know, very few loans around that. So the, so the lenders are really conscious of that limit. Uh, the, the commercial lenders know that, uh, there is a value to the securitization option. You know, they, they, they sort of think it's important that they can securitize those loans, sell them to Fannie and Freddie. Um, and in the spike is that, you know, there's something like two or three times more loans um, at the limit than outside of that, of that little window on the left side of the conforming limit. So really a huge spike, very important. And it really shows that the lenders are, um, uh, should I say, taking advantage. Uh, I'm always worried about loaded language, but like, you know, uh, using the securitization option. Yeah. So... Okay, so let's walk through what we think might be happening here. One of the things I thought was interesting about the this research is that you focus on areas after a natural a billion dollar natural disaster has occurred. So this isn't this isn't lenders sitting there and saying, "I think there's an increasing risk of flood in this region, and so I want to be careful to." Um, offload as many of my mortgages as possible onto Fannie and Freddie. This is like a natural disaster hits and suddenly the lenders in that area wake up to the risk and then this occurs. So is the idea, do you think that this is um, conscious? Like they're actually making a deliberate decision? Do you have any evidence of that? Or is it just sort of implicit in um, how they think about what they should be originating? Uh, you know, we, we don't have, you know, we don't have a hot document Uh that, uh, you know, in antitrust, in the world of antitrust, a hot document is a document that says, you know, people are intentionally doing this. Um, so we don't have a hot document that says the lenders are consciously engaging in this practice. But we have a lot of um, evidence that supports uh, what we call the learning hypothesis, which is that the lenders are, are learning about local risk by observing the damage caused by hurricanes, 
and by observing mortgage defaults uh, due to uh, uh, hurricanes. Um, and part of the reason they're learning is because the flood maps that FEMA draws uh, are outdated. Um, and they, they're really slowly updated. You know, it takes a long time for FEMA to update those maps. Um, and so, so one, there's one key uh, uh, element that, that, is, that is important here is we look at the history of hurricanes since 1851. And you know, there are areas of the U.S. where hurricanes are you know, frequent. Uh, Florida is you know, very frequently hit by hurricanes. Um, Louisiana is uh, very frequently hit by hurricanes. But then Texas is much less likely to be hit by hurricanes historically since 1851. And, and, the, and lenders are learning about the new emerging climate risk by observing what's happening. And, you know, I can't give you my, 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 the name of my source in the commercial lending world, but, you know, uh, I, I have interviewed some commercial uh, lenders uh, uh, at senior levels. And what they're telling me is that they're really carefully monitoring the situation to see whether events like Hurricane Harvey are going to be much more and more frequent over time. And, and you know, I think what's going to happen is that is that if that kind of event becomes a regular occurrence, we're going to see substantial shifts in the perception of the of the mortgage lending industry on 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 local risk. We're taking a quick break here from our climate risk series to talk about Schneider Electric, a company that is reducing risk through the development of microgrids. We live in a world where the entire power system is being upended by digitization, local movements for distributed clean energy, and Schneider Electric is on top of it. It's helping companies, communities, governments embrace microgrids to enable a more resilient, reliable, and sustainable future. Across North America, Schneider Electric has designed and built more than 300 microgrid projects. To learn more about their microgrid as a service funding model, go to the website that we're linking to in the show notes, and you'll see all the service offerings right there. PG&E is our other sponsor. Uh, California's going through a wild time right now. Uh, but one of the big transitions is, of course, around electric vehicles. And 20% of EV drivers are up there in Northern California in PG&E service territory. There are a lot of corporations there, too, that are looking to completely overturn their fleets and integrate electric vehicles, and PG&E can help with that. And there's a free guidebook out there on fleet electrification. Uh, you can get it, and no strings attached, no forms to fill. You can download this free copy at pge.com slash gtmev. You mentioned the flood maps, um, and that drives a question I wanted to ask, which it has to do with flood insurance, right? Because so in theory, um, if I have flood insurance for my home and my home floods, then the insurance should repay me for the damage, and I shouldn't be particularly more likely to default on my mortgage, which is really the risk here from the lender's perspective, right? So is this largely a function of the fact that... Um, People do not. People who should have flood insurance do because of climate change, because the you know hurricanes are getting stronger and so on. Do not because the flood maps are out of date, and as a result, there's this disconnect that 
makes the mortgages really risky? Or is it true even if you do have flood insurance? Right. So um, uh, technically, households have to purchase uh, flood insurance when they're buying a home that is in what we call the special flood hazard area. Uh, which is uh, an area um, in the what is called the hundred-year floodplain, which is an area that's supposed to be hit with a one percent uh, probability. So it doesn't mean that it, it's hit only once every hundred years, but on average, it's once over hundred years. Um, um, now, the the there's um, that that should lead to fewer defaults uh, and more prepayments. And since uh, Fannie and Freddie do not insure commercial lenders against the risk of prepayment, uh, you know, if households were insured, you know, there would be no paper. We wouldn't be writing this paper. Uh, and so, in our Bloomberg piece, we uh, the title is uh, "When Mortgages When When uh, Climate Risk Causes Mortgage Defaults." And so, we really think that what's important is that. There's been a very significant decline in the take up of flood insurance. Um, my contacts in, in, uh, um, both the U.S. Congress and in the, uh, commercial lending world, uh, tell me that one of the issues is, uh, a lack of enforcement of the flood insurance mandate. Uh, so, uh, Numbers from Caroline Kowski at, at Wharton show that there is a very substantial decline in the number of flood insurance policies that are purchased over time since 2008. Um, and uh, that's both in numbers and in dollar volume of, of flood insurance policies. So there's been a decline in the take up of flood insurance policies, even though the risk is increasing. So it's really concerning. So that's one thing. The second problem we face is that Households who uh, uh, are purchasing a house that is at risk of flooding, but the house is not in the special flood hazard area because the map is outdated, um, um, are not required to purchase flood insurance, and they're much more likely to default in that case. Uh, so we think that that what's gonna what may be happening is that the decline of the national flood insurance program may lead to much more of a climate risk burden. Uh, of uh, on the balance sheets of the GSEs that the GSEs may be substituting for flood insurance. So the New York Times sort of wrote up a, a piece on your research and said that this has they said called it echoes of the subprime crisis. I guess I got I want to get your take on whether that feels like a a good characterization to you because the, so the worry that they're implying is basically we have all these lenders who are further along in recognizing climate risk than the flood maps and then Fannie and Freddie are able to screen for. They originate a ton of risky mortgages, offload them onto Fannie and Freddie, which are basically backed by the taxpayer. And so Fannie and Freddie get stuck holding a bunch of bad mortgages, which is similar to what happened, at least part of what happened in the, the last financial crisis, all, although it would be for a different reason. Do you think that it, it has that level of concern? Look, uh, I was talking to a, uh, a policymaker uh, and who was telling me, look, there's no problem with Fannie and Freddie. They're profitable. They're profitable companies. And, and I replied that Fannie and Freddie were also profitable in 2006. Uh, so, you know, the kind of risk that they're taking on their balance sheet is, is long-term risk. It's not something that is realized on an annual basis, but it's something that slowly builds up and at some point, it becomes too late for us to 
to uh, sort of put out the fire uh, that the, the 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 risk that is taken on by those companies may be too large at some point. So we really need to react early on. Think about it. Mortgages are have a maturity of thirty years. So so we really need to anticipate what's going to happen before it's too late. Um, and um, what's also concerning is that when I speak to the private sector, uh, they are very aware of the risk. And some of them have very good data science staff that builds extremely accurate forecasts of, uh, I shouldn't say extremely accurate, but I I guess um, uh, builds very precise forecasts of climate risk. And so they're investing uh, millions of dollars in trying to understand uh, what's happening. Uh, and we think that it's really important that FHFA, uh, which is the, the federal agency that, that supervises Fannie and Freddie, uh, is working at the same pace as the private sector. And so, so yes, um, to one journalist, I said that our work is a little bit like the big short meets Al Gore's and inconvenient truth. Uh, in the sense that, you know, some of the risks that the big short uh, highlighted, uh, the packaging of loans in mortgage-backed securities, um, the offloading of the bad risk, the market for lemons in uh, securitization, uh, they could be here for climate risk. Uh, and and I think it's, it's concerning when the federal government uh, may not moving at the same pace as the private sector. Do you think we might see the same things for other types of natural disasters. I mean, I live in Northern California. We're facing wildfires here. Might you see something similar around wildfire areas or, you know, tornadoes and floods in the Midwest? Uh, or do you think this is going to be, I mean, I know that a, a big chunk of the, for example, insured losses due to natural disaster come in just a couple of states because of hurricanes, because they're so destructive, but the impacts of climate change are broader and the natural disaster is that the impacts are broader. So I'm curious what you think about all those other um, areas of the country and types of disasters. Yeah, one of the key questions is, you know, how, how predictable are, are those risks? Uh, and and uh, we, we haven't worked on wildfires for that specific question yet, but our hunch may, is that wildfires, uh, the, the specific location of wildfires may be less predictable than the specific location of the floods. Um, and so there may be less learning there, but we think it's really an important question that needs to be addressed. Um, and uh, so, so we 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 have very good data on wildfires, and that's one of the uh, next research projects that we have, which is which is to see whether uh, lenders are learning about wildfire risk and are selling their bad wildfire risk to uh, the government-sponsored enterprises. So, so we do think it's a, it's a concern. In the case of hurricanes, um, th- there's two things that are important. One is that uh, the increase in a global temperature leads to increases in sea surface temperature, which is a significant predictor of uh, the intensity of the hurricane season. Um, and we've got local measures of elevation, um, of uh, land cover that allow us to get, you know, reasonably good forecasts of flood risk. So the element of predictability is really important. Uh, if lenders are able to predict that risk 
and Fanny and Freddie are not uh, doing the due diligence to forecast those risks, then we're facing some systemic uh, risk here. I don't know if you've done this, but do you have any kind of estimation of, let's just say this continues to play out, um, how big a risk, how how big an impact might we see ultimately on the economics for Fannie and Freddie and thus on their solvency and thus on the American taxpayer? You know, when I've, I've spent uh, wonderful evenings with a cup of tea reading the annual reports of uh, Fannie and Freddie. Um, and you do see... Uh, that this they they actually write down the some of the provisions for losses uh, that they made after Hurricane Katrina, um, after Hurricane Harvey, and uh, right after Hurricane Katrina in two thousand in the two thousand six annual report, they write that they made provisions for losses of hundreds of millions of dollars due to Hurricane Katrina. Um, uh, so. Uh, for the more recent hurricanes, they don't break it down by hurricane uh, for some for some reason. We want more transparency on these losses. Uh, but uh, you know, if you if you think about sixty five percent, I said sixty five percent of mortgages are uh, securitized uh, on average. Uh, there's about hundred billion dollars that are originated every year. So that's a cumulative hundred billion dollars every year in coastal areas are originated. Um, now, so if we see, you know, increases in uh, defaults of a few percentage points due to climate risk, uh, we're starting to th- talk about, you know, billions of dollars of losses that are uh, borne by U.S. taxpayers. Um, and of course, you know, there's also some tail risk that uh, what if uh, our forecasts are rosy and optimistic? Uh, and what if we we really exceed the targets of the international uh, panel for uh, climate change. Uh, so, uh, so, so that's that's what we're concerned about. The, the sort of the tail risk um, that makes the losses uh, go from a few billion dollars to tens of billions of dollars. Uh, and so, so, so that's what really we're concerned about. Um, and and we think that lenders should sort of reflect this kind of risk in their pricing, in their interest rates, uh, in their decisions to underwrite loans. Okay, so let me give you my layperson's understanding then of of everything that we're talking about here, and you can tell me what I've got wrong. So basically what's happening is that at the local level, there are lenders who are, you know, giving mortgages to new homeowners um, in areas where there is risk of flood largely due to hurricane, and particularly certain areas where there is sort of new risk of flood, where these one in a hundred year floods aren't really supposed to hit these areas, but they are hitting them and they're hitting them more than once every hundred years. And so FEMA's flood maps haven't caught up with that. They are not required to get flood insurance. And so these mortgages are, as a result, probably more risky than the mortgages that you might see if you didn't have flood risk or if you did have flood risk, but were insured against it. And local lenders um, and commercial banks seem to be, based on your data, recognizing this after the first natural disaster hits the area. And as a result, changing their lending behavior such that they can offload more, a larger share of their mortgages onto Fannie and Freddie, who are basically stuck taking it because they can't bake these calculations into their own assessment 
And so ultimately, if that all plays out and these mortgages do turn out to be riskier and there is a higher risk of default, then we might see, you know, billions of dollars potentially of losses to the American taxpayer via Fannie and Freddie because we're wearing all the climate risk in these mortgages. Is that right? And sort of how concerned should we be as taxpayers as a result? Oh, uh, I think we should be concerned uh, because uh, these, you know, potential tens of billions of dollars of losses that we may be incurring uh, are going to take money away from other programs. Um, and so they're going to take money away from uh, education, um, for uh, help for homeowners in, in safe areas. Um, and, and that's going to cost uh, jobs. Uh, there's an opportunity cost of guaranteeing loans in those coastal areas. Um, so, so it's, it's an accurate summary of the, of the research. And, and I do think that, you know, this is, this is to our knowledge, the first piece of work that documents this. And so we, we expect to see many more research papers on this topic in the next five to 10 years. And, you know, a mortgage originated today in 2019 with a maturity of 30 years is going to mature in 2049. 2049 is, you know, I'm sure your audience knows, is the horizon at which the IPCC forecasts that extreme sea levels are going to be a regular occurrence. Um, so, so, you know, we better watch out the kind of long-term risk uh, that we're putting on the balance sheet of, of Fannie and, and, and Freddie. Amin, thank you so much for taking the time. This is fascinating and somewhat terrifying stuff. Thank you so much for your invitation. It was real pleasure. Again, that was Amin Wasad, a professor of applied economics at HEC Montreal. You can find his study linked in the show notes there, as always. So this is the last installment of our series on risk. Shale, are you feeling more or less cynical after hearing about all these potential calamities? I don't think cynical is necessarily the right word or the right even spectrum to describe how I feel about it. I'm, I'm heartened by the work that is going into understanding climate risk and the improvements in the underlying science that allows us to make those calculations. I think that's, that's really good news. Um, and the better that gets, the easier it's going to be to convince all the various actors who then need to take that calculation and do something with it to to do so. I think where we are right now is we're, you know, as, as I think Trevor Hauser said in the first episode of this series, we're, it's really only been the past couple of years where we're capable of, of assessing this risk at any really detailed level with sufficient granularity and quantification to do something about it. So the next step is let's do something about it. Let's figure out all the ways that we can, you know, price risk and price resilience into everything from our mortgages to our financial investments to anything else that might be impacted. Whatever happens, we've got something to cheer everyone up because we're going to bookend this series with the deep decarbonization draft. It is returning just in time for your Thanksgiving travel. Indeed. I can't wait. I've been spending the last 18 months preparing <laughs> two a day mock drafts. We're calling it D3, The Climate Strikes Back. So that was Shale's idea. So I guess we're stuck with Star Wars themes. <laughs> I won't take that blame. <laughs> All right. We'll be on the lookout for that wherever you get this podcast. 
If you like what we're doing here with this series and all the other topics we cover, give us a rating and review at Apple. And uh, thank you for listening. The Interchange is produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. Shale Khan is my co-host. And we are a co-production of Green Tech Media and PostScript Audio. We'll catch you soon. Thank you.